Chapter 35 Young Folks' History of the American Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon, GaryBohannon.com. Young Folks' History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson. The Surrender of Cornwallis. Before Washington arrived in Virginia, a part of the French fleet had blockaded the York River, and the remainder of it was anchored at Linhaven Bay, after 3,200 French soldiers had been landed to join the force of Lafayette. Count de Grasse had been eager to attack the British and had urged Lafayette to join him in making one, but the prudent boy wisely declined to act until Washington himself should arrive and decide what was best to be done. At sunrise on September 5th, the presence of a large fleet off Cape Charles was discovered, and the French admiral had at first supposed it to be the vessels of his friend de Barras, who was expected to arrive at almost any moment from Newport. When he was convinced that the ships were those of the British Admiral Graves, he sailed forth to meet them. Though some slight engagements followed, no real battle took place during the five days in which the opposing naval forces watched each other. Word soon came that de Brasse had arrived with his fleet. Some have conjectured that de Grasse was merely waiting for his coming and was holding his enemy in a position where he could do no damage, and de Grasse sailed back to his former position. There was now no hope of escape for Cornwallis by sea, unless the British fleet came to his relief, and on land a line of troops cut off a retreat in that direction. Three days after the arrival of Washington, he, with General Knox, Rochambeau, and others, paid a visit to de Grasse aboard the Ville de Paris, the flagship of the French fleet. The Admiral having had word that the fleet of the British Admiral Graves had been strengthened by the addition of the vessels under the command of Admiral Digby, de Grasse was for going to sea at once and meeting his foes. Such a departure would mean that Cornwallis would no longer be blockaded and might escape by sea, and the heart of the great commander must have been heavy as he thought of the possibility of all his plans and labors being blasted by this mistake. However, the Frenchman was at last persuaded to remain, and as soon as the army from the head of Elk arrived, as it did September 25th, plans were at once made for an attack on the entrenchments of Cornwallis. Opposite Yorktown was Gloucester Point, where Cornwallis had stationed Colonel Tarleton with about 700 men. The French General de Choisy, with some of the Virginia militia, was to hold this detachment where it was, while the main body moved forward upon the post held by Cornwallis. On October 6th, the Americans had moved up within 600 yards of the English lines, and in the nighttime, working silently and with desperate haste, their first parallel was begun, and when daylight appeared, they had erected earthworks that were strong enough to protect them. On October 9th and 10th, the batteries of the Americans and French were firing, and so terrible was the effect that one of the British gunboats and three of the transports were burned, and many a redcoat lost his life. Under the cover of darkness and the protection of the firing, the busy Americans had dug the trenches and thrown up the embankments which formed the second parallel and were now within 300 yards of Cornwallis's works. The British, however, were still true Britons and had not been idle for they had advanced their redoubts in front of their works, 
and the toiling Americans were greatly harassed by the fire that came from them. To put an end to this trouble, it was determined that these positions should be taken, and on the evening of October 14th, Lafayette led an American detachment toward the left of these redoubts, while Baron de Villomenil led a similar detachment of French soldiers against the one on the right. Captain Aaron Ogden of New Jersey led the van of the division commanded by Lafayette. Not a gun had been loaded, but with fixed bayonets the men leaped over the abatis, climbed the palisades, and within two minutes, so desperate was their charge, the redoubt was taken, and all the British there were prisoners. Viomenil and his followers also succeeded in taking the other redoubt, though the baron lost almost one hundred men in the assault, whereas Lafayette had lost but a few. Batteries were now placed in the captured positions, and the guns turned upon the British. The plight of Cornwallis was becoming desperate, but he was not yet ready to give up. About four o'clock on the morning of October 16th, he sent a detachment under Colonel Abercrombie to assault two of the batteries that were guarded by French troops. The assault was made with the fury of desperation, and at first was successful, for the French soldiers were driven back, but the fire from the trenches upon the redcoats became so furious that they in turn were driven back to their comrades, and the attempt to cut their way through their enemies had failed. Still, Cornwallis was not ready to give up. His next plan was to leave the sick and wounded in the camp and cross by boats to Gloucester Point. A hundred cannon were by this time pounding at his position. No fleet had come to his aid, and his situation was desperate indeed. A few boatloads of his soldiers had already crossed to Gloucester Point, but a sudden and severe storm arose. The boats were scattered, and the second attempt to escape had failed. On the following day still more guns were in action, and Cornwallis was almost in despair. At ten o'clock that morning, October 17, he sent word to Washington, begging for hostilities to cease for twenty-four hours. Washington replied that he too was eager to spare further effusion of blood, but he refused to stop the action for more than two hours. He had no thought in that terribly anxious hour of permitting Clinton to come to the aid of the desperate force he was attacking and he was fearful at any moment of learning that such aid had come. Cornwallis then submitted his propositions, and Washington made a rough draft of the things he should require, and the suggestions of the two commanders were enough alike to lead Washington to decide to suspend hostilities through the day and night. Colonel Lawrence and Viscount de Nolas were to be commissioners for the Americans, and Colonel Dundas and Major Ross were to serve in a similar capacity for the British. These commissioners met in the house of Mrs. Moore, which was near the right of the American lines, on the morning of October 18th, but they were not able to agree fully as to terms. Again Washington, fearful that the British were fighting for time, was compelled to be decisive, and on the early morning of October 19th, 1781, he sent a written draft of the rough outline of the terms he required, and also a letter in which he declared that he expected the terms would be signed by Cornwallis before eleven o'clock that morning. The articles were signed, the British troops marched out of the town, and General Lincoln received the surrender, which had been granted on the very same terms he himself had received from Cornwallis at Charleston. 
the American army was drawn up on the right side of the road over which the surrendered British were to come, and the French were on the left, the two lines extending for more than a mile. At the head of the American line was Washington, mounted on a white horse, and Rochambeau, on a bay horse, was at the head of the French. A great crowd of country people had also come to see the proud Cornwallis surrender to his enemy, but the conquered general was too ill to appear, and so sent General O'Hara in his stead. That officer was directed to give the sword of Cornwallis to General Lincoln, who, after receiving the sword, gave it back to the general who had surrendered it. Twenty-eight British captains now advanced, each bearing a flag and a case, and the same number of American sergeants advanced to receive the colors. When the order was given for the British captains to give up the flags, they hesitated. Colonel Hamilton, who was the officer of the day, at once rode forward to inquire into the meaning of the delay, and was informed that they did not like to give up their colors to non-commissioned officers. Hamilton politely ordered young Ensign Wilson of Clinton's brigade, he was but 18 years of age, to receive the colors, and then hand them to the waiting sergeants, which was done. All the redcoats then grounded their arms and laid aside their accoutrements, and they were marched back to their lines. The New Jersey Gazette, in its issue of November 7, 1781, in a description of the surrender, has also the following, quote, The British officers in general behaved like boys who had been whipped at school, and some bit their lips, some pouted, others cried, their round, broad-brimmed hats were well adapted to the occasion, hiding those faces they were ashamed to show. The foreign regiments made a much more military appearance, and the conduct of their officers was far more becoming men of fortitude. The seamen and the shipping were assigned to the French, but the 7,000 soldiers became the prisoners of the victorious Americans. Of the British, 552 had been killed or wounded in the siege of 13 days, and about 300 of the Americans and French had fallen. The artillery of Cornwallis, his arms, ammunition, and stores formed a rich prize for the conquerors, but the glory and the moral effect of the victory were far greater. Once more the large-mindedness of Washington appeared, for he permitted Cornwallis to send the Bonetta to New York to Clinton with the message of the surrender, and on board of her went many Tories who had been with the British at Yorktown, and were fearful of falling into the hands of the Americans, and were fearful of falling into the hands of the Americans. The prisoners were led to Winchester, Virginia, and Fredericktown, Maryland, and some of them afterward sent to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Cornwallis himself and some of his principal officers were paroled and sent to New York. The surrender had been made at just the opportune time for the Americans, for on the very day when Cornwallis surrendered, Clinton had set sail with 7,000 of his best troops to come to the aid of his friend. Five days afterward, when the fleet arrived off the Virginia Capes, word was received of the fate of the army of Cornwallis, and though the British delayed for a few days, it was apparent that they had come too late to accomplish anything. Accordingly, on the 29th of October, Sir Henry Clinton and Admiral Graves sailed away for New York, sadder and doubtless somewhat wiser men than they previously had been. The surrender of Cornwallis produced the greatest joy in the American camp. Special praise was bestowed upon Lincoln, Knox, Lafayette, Duportail, and Steuben of the American army, and upon Rochambeau and others of the French army, 
If any soldiers were under arrest, they were ordered to be set free, and a time of general thanksgiving was held. Washington sent his aide, Colonel Tillman, post-haste to Philadelphia with the news, and at midnight, four days after the surrender, so excellent was the time the officer made, he rode into that city. The excited messenger rapped so loudly on the door of the house in which Thomas McKean, then president of the Continental Congress, resided, that the night watchman almost decided to arrest him. Cornwallis is taken, however, became too strong a message to be set aside, and soon every watchman in the city was calling out the joyful tidings as he proclaimed the hour of the night. Congress assembled at an early hour, and when the letter of Washington was read, the staid statesman huzzaed and acted generally like a band of boys just out of school. However, they voted their thanks to Washington, Rochambeau, de Grasse, and others, presented each of these two Frenchmen with two of the captured cannon, gave two of the stands of colors to Washington in the name of the United States, and did various other deeds, notable among which was the gift to Colonel Tillman, who had brought the message, of a sword and a fine horse. December 13th was appointed as a day of thanksgiving and rejoicing, and the pulpits, societies, and the people of the little nation rejoiced as perhaps never they had done before. The French afterward calmly claimed the victory as one which they had won. Fairness compels us gladly to admit that their aid was great, but the plan and victory belonged to Washington and the patriots who had fought with him. Soon after Cornwallis surrendered, Washington tried to induce de Grasse to go to South Carolina to the aid of General Greene, but the French admiral declined to do so, and was not willing even to go to help the little force which Colonel Craig then had at Wilmington, North Carolina. So strongly did Washington feel about the matter, that he not only wrote a letter to de Grasse, but also paid him a long visit in the Ville de Paris, the flagship of the French fleet but the admiral was obstinate and would not even carry the troops to the aid of Green. We must remember, however, that the French were in America not so much to aid the Americans as to hurt Great Britain, and de Grasse had his own plans and orders as to how this was best to be done, and believing as he did that his chief work lay in the region of the West Indies, he is not to be blamed for going there, especially as he was afterwards soundly whipped there by the English fleet. The most that can be said is that though the French had aided the Americans at Yorktown, they did not deserve all the credit they took to themselves for their victory which was won. Count de Grasse did, however, consent to cover the transporting of the soldiers from the country east of Pennsylvania to Head of Elk, and then quickly set sail for the West Indies. The French troops under Rochambeau, however, remained in Virginia, and that sterling leader was most gratefully remembered by all who knew him. In the following summer, 1782, his men joined the Continental Army on the Hudson, and in the autumn proceeded to New England, and embarking early in December at Boston, sailed away for sunny France. General Washington himself, as soon as he had arranged all his plans at Yorktown, made haste to go to Eltham, where Mr. Custis, the son of Mrs. Washington, lay dying. The general arrived before the death of the young man and remaining a few days after his decease, then made his way back to his army. It is interesting to know that he himself adopted two of the four young children who survived their father, Mr. Custis. Washington's ride through the country was everywhere made the occasion of great rejoicing, and at Philadelphia, 
where he remained a few days, all classes united to do him honor. When he went to the State House, where Congress was in session, a congratulatory address was made by the president of that body, and doubtless the heart of the great soldier was then amply repaid for the many misunderstandings and the long period through which he had patiently waited for the end to come. General St. Clair, with a body of troops, was sent to aid Greene, and marching by the way of Wilmington, North Carolina, he drove the enemy from that place, and soon, as far as an open enemy was concerned, both Virginia and North Carolina were free. Mad Anthony Wayne, with a body of troops, went to Georgia, where he had several engagements with the Redcoats and the Tories and Indians. But the hearts of the Americans were bold now, while those of their foes were cast down, and at last the British evacuated Savannah, in July, 1782, and when Wayne took possession of that town, the war in Georgia was ended. In South Carolina there were some skirmishes and minor engagements, which were then fought with exceeding bitterness, though the numbers engaged were comparatively few. Charleston was evacuated by the British December 14, 1782, and when Wayne with his 5,000 troops entered the town, South Carolina, too, was rid of her open enemies, though the Tories were still as bitter as ever. The last engagement of the war was an attack on the British stationed on John's Island, near Charleston, and though the Americans were driven back and their leader, Captain Wilmot, was killed, the result did not affect the outcome of the war. This was in September 1782, and by many, as has been stated, the action has been looked upon as the last engagement of the Revolution, and Captain Wilmot as the last patriot to give up his life for his country in battle. End of chapter 35